Welcome to Making Therapy Better, the podcast that brings together some of the top minds in psychotherapy as well as everyday clinicians to talk about where the field is headed and how we can achieve better mental health care for everyone. Making Therapy Better is hosted by Professor Bruce Wampold, who has dedicated his career to understanding how therapy works and advocating evidence-based methods for improving outcomes. His guests today are Michael Barkham, Ph.D., and Jamie Delgadillo, Ph.D. Michael is a professor of clinical psychology at the University of Sheffield, UK. He has spent the past 35 years promoting the measurement of psychological therapies and routine practice, and in 2019, he received the Senior Distinguished Research Career Award from the Society for Psychotherapy Research. Jamie is also a professor of clinical psychology at the University of Sheffield and director of the Psychological Therapies Research at R-NHS Foundation Trust. He has 20 years of clinical experience and has published over 90 scientific papers and book chapters in the field of mental health. Making Therapy Better is brought to you by CarePaths. CarePaths has been helping in-person and virtual therapy practices thrive for over 20 years with their complete web-based EHR and practice management platform. As mental health care evolves, CarePaths is leading the way in making measurement-based care easy and cost-effective for therapists. Visit carepaths.com to sign up for a free trial today. And now, without further ado, Episode 3 of Making Therapy Better, Improving Systems of Care, with Michael Barkham and Jamie Delgadillo. Jamie and Michael, this is a great opportunity for me to talk to you guys about the research you've been doing and the implications for mental health care. So I'm excited to have this conversation. I know in England, there's a program to uh, really provide mental health services to those people that are suffering through the program called Increased Access to Psychological Treatments. I act. So you've had access to data generated by this program, and we want to talk about that today. But first, let's share with our audience about what IAPT is, uh, how it began, how it works, and um, more generally, uh, what what it does for people. Um, well, Probably Jamie can talk best to what it actually does and how it works because he actually worked in an IAPT uh, service. Um, but maybe I can kick it off because I was involved in an initial evaluation uh, when it was started up. So maybe if I start with that and then Jamie can run with uh, how it actually in reality worked. Um, and in some ways, it's actually quite interesting, um, particularly... <laughs> for Americans, if uh, lovers of history and uh, Boston Tea Party, et cetera. But actually, the the source of it, in some ways, goes back literally to a tea event, tea party, at um, the British Academy. 2003 is when it's supposed to, the idea is supposed to have germinated. And the British Academy is basically a learner society. And two folk were in the queue for tea. One of them was Richard Layard, Lord Richard Layard, who was an economist and an advisor to the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Okay, so has direct access to funding. Um, And he has an interest in happiness and a concern about the mental health of the nation, etc. And behind him, supposedly, is 
this person, David Clark, and he turns to David Clark and says, do you know anything about mental health? <laughs> and um, David Clark says, yes. Um, and it's interesting because that's actually the, the germination of it, which is basically Richard Laird has this vision of how to deal and address with um, the mental health of the nation in some ways, unhappiness, particularly depression, anxiety, which he knows as an economist is costing the country, he yeah. quotes, £46 billion pounds or whatever. David Clark has the evidence for the fact that there are effective treatments for depression. And so the point is that Richard Layard, between them and David Clark, realised, OK, we've got a problem. We've got, a, we've got treatments. It's not as if we need new treatments. What we need is a vehicle for the delivery of those mm. treatments to the population at large. So basically, because Richard Loud is so well connected right at the very top um, to George Brown, who later became prime minister, um, he put forward a strategic document in the beginning of 2005 to make a bid for a new program of delivering psychological therapies, which actually became IAPT. And what they did was they took two what they called demonstration sites, one in Newham in London and one in Doncaster. And they tested out various forms, which I won't go into the detail, but basically out of that configuration became IAPT. But what's particularly interesting is that if any of us as psychologists were about to instigate a programme, we would run pilots, yeah? We would run a pilot programme. They weren't pilot programmes, they were demonstrations. Mm -hmm. In other words, they were absolutely committed to this idea from the get-go. And the purpose of these two demonstration sites, Newham and Doncaster, was to show that actually they could deliver psychotherapy, psychological therapies, effectively um, en masse, in a way. So the whole point was about improving access. I don't think, and Jamie might sort of have a different view on this, I don't think it was ever really the intention to improve, to, to devise a new model of therapy. It was actually to find a vehicle for the delivery of therapy in, a, in an effective way, which actually is a model of stepped care. And I mean, mm -hmm. I think Jay, Jamie can then sort of talk about how stepped care works um, in that, that kind of way. But I just think it's actually interesting, that background history, because really, if you think about it, it's really the sort of a mixture of serendipity of these two characters meeting yeah. up in a TQ, okay? Access to government right at the very top and then money to actually deliver it. So mm -hmm. IAPT is not something that just happens. It needed that configuration of all those factors to make that kind of happen. So yeah. that, that, but, that's my understanding of how it actually... And yeah. We were involved with Glenis Parry, who led the programme to, to, to sort of evaluate that, those two demonstration sites, which is why kind of, I kind of... It's buried in my brain, really, the, the origins mm -hmm. of it. Well, before we get to Jamie, I just want to emphasize the point that you made. We have treatments that work. We know yeah. psychotherapy is effective. 
the the issue is access. And exactly. here's a program, as you say, we're not going to develop new treatments. We're not going to do things in new innovative ways. We know what works. We need to get it into the hands of those people who are suffering. So exactly. in that way, yeah. it's brilliant. Yeah. So Jamie, your experience with I am because you kind of, in a sense, grew up there. Well, picking up on the expression of a demonstration site that Michael pointed to, um, indeed, the intention of the program is to scale up and improve access to empirically supported interventions. So this was not about demonstrating whether the interventions work or not. It was to demonstrate whether it can be scaled up to a routine care population. Um, so how does it work in practice? Empirically supported interventions that have been demonstrated to be effective in efficacy trials and prior studies were organized in a stepped care model, whereby, at least in theory, the majority of patients with common mental health problems would initially access a brief and low-intensity intervention that may be effective to alleviate their symptoms and improve their functioning, based on the expectation that um, these interventions could be cost-effective in the sense of offering the least expensive and least restrictive um, intervention that could lead to some functional improvements. Um, those patients for whom these brief interventions are not effective then have the opportunity to be what is referred to as stepped up to more traditional empirically supported psychotherapies. And there is a list of, of these treatments uh, that, that have been established to work for the treatment of depression, anxiety, and common mental health problems. Um, in the literature, this step care system has been described as a um, self-correcting model, whereby eventually people receive the intervention that meets their needs, albeit with uh, some degree of uncertainty about which treatment might be mm. best for which individual. And um, it, it has been argued that it is, it is a, an efficient, cost-effective way to organize scarce resources for large populations. Indeed, this view is backed up by empirical evidence of stepped care clinical trials, where this model has been compared to uh, control conditions such as usual care or mm -hmm. um, other um, alternatives that were available at the time in the studies that investigated this. So there's a pretty good empirical basis to establish this model. And indeed the demonstration site that Michael was referring to showed that um, in the implementation of this model in routine care, you observe the kinds of pre-post-treatment effect sizes that um, you tend to observe in efficacy trials as well, where that data is available, where pre-post-treatment effect sizes are used as benchmarks. So far, so good. But those of us that have, uh, as you put it, Bruce, grown up in this system, so you know, I did my clinical training, CBT, some years ago, uh, uh, sponsored, in fact, by, by uh, the IAP service that I was working in at the time. So I've been working in this system for about 12 12 years as a psychotherapist and clinical supervisor. Now, those of us who see it from the inside also notice that there are some problems. One of the problems that has fascinated me, and I'm sure that uh, that Michael uh, is, is also very- Hey, Jamie, let me interrupt just for a second, because sure. I, I want to just establish one fact before we get to the problems, which okay. I think are 
are really important because you know this isn't just a rollout to a few clinics. This is a national program. And you're talking about the model being cost effective and that the effects of the uh, services being offered are effective. And I just wanna emphasize that point, if you agree. This is working. People who uh, use the service, the step care service, are at the population level benefiting and they're benefiting to a degree comparable to what we see in clinical trials under the best conditions. Is that right? Yes, that was the claim at the very start of the program that were that were the conclusions of the initial demonstration sites. And 10 years later, very many studies have been conducted within this environment, within the IAP program. We might think of these as practice-based evidence that, that arises mm. through the system. Um, also confirms, broadly speaking, the same, let's say, headline. Um, mm. I've got some figures for you to, to, to discuss this in more detail. For example, one of our doctoral students, Sarah Wakefield, conducted a systematic review and meta-analysis of practice-based studies arising from the IAPT program in the last 10 years. This was published in uh, the British uh, Journal of Clinical Psychology in 2021. The high-level findings are that when you aggregate pre- to post-treatment effect sizes for depression and anxiety symptom measures, the effect sizes that come out of the meta-analysis are for depression in the range of 0.87 on Cohen D scale, and for mm -hmm. anxiety, 0.88 on Cohen D scale. Mm -hmm. Now, how does this compare to the wider literature? More recently, one of our doctoral students, Chris Gaskell, published a uh, large-scale meta-analysis of practice-based evidence worldwide. Uh, this was published this year in the Journal Administration and Policy in Mental Health and Mental Health Services Research. This included meta-analysis of over 250 studies. When you pool data for those that report depression outcomes, pre- to post-treatment effect sizes, the pooled effect size for practice-based evidence on depression is 0.96. And for anxiety, it's 0.8. Now, when you look at the confidence intervals around these estimates, they very much overlap with the data that's coming out of the IAPT practice-based yeah. studies. Yeah. So what can we conclude? It appears that the effectiveness observed in the IAPT system is largely comparable to international benchmarks. Mm -hmm. Of course, we all know that these are aggregated group-level means that mask huge variability. And yeah. that, that, that word, that expression of variability in treatment outcomes has been very much a, a, a topic of uh, of interest for both Michael, myself, and other colleagues in our department. Yeah, I think we're going to get to that because uh, your efforts have been aimed at how can we improve uh, the quality of service because we do have this variability. But before we get to that, um, I interrupted Jamie because you were saying, well, there might be a few problems as well. So let's talk about that part. Okay, so... Headline figure, this stuff works. It seems to work as well as we might expect, at least by comparison to 
benchmarks from selected clinical trials, which was the method in the demonstration studies, more recently compared to the wider literature of practice-based evidence internationally, we find very similar comparable effect sizes. So, so far, so good, this stuff seems to work. However, uh, it doesn't work for everyone and it works much better for some patients compared to others. Mm. So when you zoom into this topic of variability, we, we start to notice that there are considerable problems. Just to name a few, many people drop out, somewhere between 25 to 30% of people drop out early, typically, mm. during the first three or four sessions, before they have an opportunity to, to maximize benefit from available interventions. Um, now, the dropout rates in the IAP system are somewhat comparable to the dropout rates of systematic reviews of psychotherapy in general. So the problem isn't more acute in this system than elsewhere, but it's certainly a problem that's, that's um, particular of psychological services. Other problems are that some patients derive considerable benefit from these interventions in a very short space of time, and they still stay well. Impressive. But of course, other patients don't benefit at all, despite having several interventions in the step care pathway. And some people who apparently benefit from these interventions have a relapse within a year and come back into the system, oftentimes more impaired than they were in the first treatment episode. Hmm. So these are just a few examples of some of the problems that we've noticed. And we've been especially interested in understanding the sources of the variability in these types of outcomes. If I can, I mean, just to sort of capture particularly the sort of at a kind of uh, more kind of um, not quite ethical, but just as a principal point about um, the step care model is that, I mean, it, it works well, particularly where people can get access very quickly to the step two, uh, which is really the kind of innovation in many ways um, compared with step three, which is the more traditional. Um, but for those people for whom that doesn't work, they have to, in effect, fail, experience failure to that right. in order to get stepped up to step three, which is the more traditional, what's called high-intensity treatment. So, you know, you, you question a model, notwithstanding everything that it's sort of done in a sense, well, and maybe there's no model that can actually sort of satisfy everybody. But, you know, you question a model that actually is principled on the fact that people, enough people have to fail in order to kind of get, and they've got, they've got to kind of deal with that failure in order to then find themselves with a treatment that they think they've then got to wait for again for step three treatment to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, the vehicle, so to speak, as we spoke about it as being this, you know, is, is in some ways a bit clunky. And mm. in, for some people, as Jamie is saying, is probably not fit for purpose for particular people in that kind of way. But, you know, you can't take it away from the model, you know, given that this was thought of, you know, virtually 20 years ago, everything changes. And maybe one thing that, IAPT has to do um, is to actually sort of begin to question itself and be able to look at how can it modify itself. And of course, the other kind of major feature, uh, which is worth mentioning, is that uh, one whole component of it was that it introduced um, sessional measures 
Um, so that all the patients attending, whether it was low intensity or high intensity, completed PHQ-9, GAD-7, and the work and social adjustment scale. And in a sense, I think that um, that was really, using the expression, a step change in terms of access to data, which actually provided so much sort of sort of golden riches, really, for the likes of Jamie and myself and other people, uh, was an absolute sort of gold mine for researchers to investigate uh, psychological therapy. So I've always kind of talked about IAPT as being the biggest social experiment in psychological therapies, and I think that's absolutely the case. Um, but it's also the biggest opportunity in terms of data provision and big data to look at how psychotherapy, how psychological therapies work over time across the course yeah. of treatment. In yeah, that they, sense, it's probably one of the world's most impressive exemplars of the concept of a learning health system, yeah. where yeah. you have constant accumulation of data in an intensive way that enables you to interrogate how the system's working and enables you to do natural experiments within the system or pragmatic trials to see whether uh, innovations or changes may make a, a, a measurable difference to patients' outcomes. Well, I think that's that's one of the commendable features that people around the world really recognize, that it, it wasn't just increased access, but it was assessment of how we're doing, which, to be clear, has led to, to both scientific publications that are important principles of how people change, but also then gives you that information. How can we tweak the system to make it better? So, yes, and, I mean, and, yeah. and just to say, I mean, in terms of that, I think David Clark has written using the word transparency. And of course, it's not just that this data is collected and um, completed by people, but it's actually made public. It's actually been made public every quarter of each year um, and published on the website mm -hmm. so people can actually access it. Yeah. So this is actually publicly available data in principle, yeah. um, although there's whole issues about what level you get access to. But in, in that way, I think, you know, from a, from a researcher point of view, it is a real revolution in terms of being able to kind of look at the process and outcomes of psychological therapies. Mm -hmm. So just one editorial comment from me, because Jamie, you're talking about dropout, you're talking about uh, unsuccessful cases, you're talking about uh, uh, some patients needing additional episodes of care. We should really put a context to this because even in medicine, we have these interventions which we all assume are, are uniformly effective, but if you look at the data, in cardiology or in respiratory diseases. Um, the, the efficacy of those treatments, many of which are very, very expensive, are not universally effective. So that doesn't mitigate against the, this idea that we need to improve. But let's be clear that the services that we offer um, uh, in IAP, but all around the world, are remarkably effective. And I think we always have to keep that in mind. Good so, point. And could they be better? Sure. And that's yeah. where that's where the 
that's where the focus of the uh, the practice-based research is. Yeah. So this big data, let's explore that a little further because you have, as you say, every patient is completing measures uh, session by session. So you had this remarkable data set. And now, you know, around the world, there are other people doing this, but clearly this is probably the most comprehensive and one of the earliest efforts to actually measure the effects of uh, uh, psychotherapy and psychological treatments. So using this big data to improve the quality of service, talk about some of the things you've learned and some of the innovations that um, uh, you've discovered implementing and that we could benefit from that knowledge. Jamie, do you want to? Well, where do we start? Um, yeah. Yeah. There, there are several sources of variability in treatment outcomes, many of which we've mm. been very interested in examining. For example, variability that may be attributable to therapists, variability mm. that might have to do with the patient's features, variability that may have to do with the process in the therapy, variability that may have to do with contextual features of where people live. Really interesting. So mm. where do we start? Maybe as, as you touched on the session by session data, I could say something about the feedback related studies and mm -hmm. maybe we, we can build from there. So uh, as you explained, Bruce, we have access to session by session outcome measures on three domains that Michael referred to earlier, depression, anxiety, and functional impairment. This enables us to aggregate large data sets across very many patients to model typical trajectories of symptomatic change over time. And we have uh, followed some of the literature referred to as progress feedback or outcome feedback, which mm. um, um, is uh, very, now very well established as, a, as an effective quality assurance system that enables you to track whether your patients are responding in a typical way as you might expect based mm. on clinical norms from other patients with similar symptoms, or whether a patient may be showing signs of stagnating, so not improving, or even deterioration. Mm -hmm. the, the, the latter case is referred to in this literature as cases that are not on track. Yeah. So one example of the work we've done is to design um, outcome prediction methods using session-by-session -session data to generate clinical norms of the expected trajectory of symptomatic change over time. Mm -hmm. And we've developed computerized systems that in real time alert therapists to cases that are not on track. Mm -hmm. um, we've done so, a few studies but, in this yeah. area. Yeah, well, um, you certainly have. I mean, the, the research on uh, whether it's called measurement-based care or routine outcome monitoring, very convincing studies that you've published that that providing this information to therapists improves the quality of care. So is this a, a mandated for all therapists in the IAPT system, or is this still in a, um, in a pilot or demonstration uh, stage? So there are two sides to this. What is mandated is routine outcome monitoring. So the mm. patient reported 
um, collection of measures of depression, anxiety, and functional mm-hmm. impairment is a, 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 a standard feature of the system. Um, you can overlay the technology to alert therapists to the uh, treatment response that they, they can expect from each individual. This isn't mandatory, but in the work that we've done, we've, we've taken a typical incremental, uh, let's say a developmental program of studies. First, to design a prediction system and to evaluate whether we can trust the predictions accuracy or not. We then moved on to doing qualitative work, including patients and therapists to assess the extent to which this may or may not be acceptable and to learn what we need to improve to make it more acceptable. We then did a field test and followed by a large randomized control trial. The punchline of all of this is that the method is, broadly speaking, acceptable and it can improve treatment outcomes. However, implementation is -hmm. difficult. Um, You typically get very enthusiastic and uh, committed practitioners that embrace the method, use it well Mm -hmm. and use it effectively. But you get other practitioners that are less enthusiastic about it and don't don't use the system. So we're now at a stage of implementation uh, related research where the system that I've been involved in has been already implemented in several IAP services. Um, and we are now um, investigating how we can enhance the uh, implementation efforts across other services. Yeah, I think I think it's important in terms of people listening to this, particularly outside the UK, to understand that, as Jamie's saying, you know, the feedback system is not mandated. You know, IAPT is a structure that's very difficult to add things to or to change. Mm-hmm. So that the work that Jamie's kind of been leading on feedback is about via negotiation with services and getting their agreement. Mm. And, you know, in some ways that, that that defines a feature of a particular service, you know, those services that really want to engage and take part and take a step further. Whereas, you know, there'll be many other services nationally who are just, you know, hard pushed to manage the system as it is because the IAP system is very demanding on people and therapists particularly a step two, the um, uh, psychological well-being practitioners are really sort of run off their feet in that way. So probably for many services, there's a kind of hesitancy or reluctance to take on any further kind of research demands because everything is a demand above and beyond what they already have to do. So it's not as if the IAP system or services are all sitting there waiting to be sort of candidates for further research. And I think that's yeah. where sort of Jamie's done such a brilliant job sort of identifying those and building collaborations with those people. Um, and a lot of this has been done on no additional um, research council funding, for example. Mm. Um, it's got IT funding and sort of industry backup, um, but not your classical uh, research council funding in a way. Yeah, I mean, this really speaks to um, institutional difficulty because we know uh, uh, Mike Lambert and Scott Miller and Barry Duncan and others uh, uh, now, I guess, decades ago, shown that under the right conditions, these feedback systems do improve outcomes, particularly for those cases uh, that are not on track. 
but to implement that uh, throughout a system of care, because the implementation is important, is not that easy. So these comments um, kind of motivate me or instigate me to, to pursue one area of your results that I think are really interesting. As I recall, and correct me if I'm wrong, you see variability, and Jamie, you talked about the variability is where we have to look, variability in outcomes among various clinics or services within IAPT. So some uh, 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 clinics are doing better in terms of their outcomes than others. So talk about what you think are the sources of that variability. And I think you mentioned uh, some briefly, but I, I think this is fascinating because we tend to think about, oh, which treatment is given, or even, and we'll talk some more about therapists, but about which therapist. But the clinic seems to make a difference. Michael, do you, do you want to take this one on variability at clinics and maybe that dovetails with uh, therapists? Well, I, I mean, I, I think probably in terms of the, the variability or, or what makes effective um, uh, delivery, I mean, I think one of the better sources of that is actually David Clark's kind of paper where he kind of looked at masses of data, was it half a million, you know, at a kind of organizational level and identified those factors that actually make for an effective um, delivery. In other words, he, he was arguing that, you know, we should move beyond new treatments, et cetera. And it's all about how treatments um, are delivered in within a service. So he was going for the kind of organizational kind of level. And, yeah. and you know, in a sense, I, th I think my reading or memory of it was really that it, there was nothing kind of sort of that you wouldn't expect in, in the findings, which is basically, for example, to, to know what the presenting problems are within the population that's being presented. Otherwise, you mm. don't know what treatments to kind of deliver. You know, you you minimize your wait time period because that's a clear that was one of the driving dissatisfactions mm. that led to the instigation of improving access. You minimize sort of cancelled appointments, etc., and you give sufficient dose of therapy. You know, mm. so the conclusions that he came to, but what that led to sort of, you know, more, more effective delivery are, are not sort of revolutionary in that kind of way. They're the ones that you actually would expect to get. And when we did the evaluation of the demonstration sites, for example, um, we found that there was one of the biggest differences um, in terms of outcomes was, for example, people completing their course of therapy. So, you know, that I think there's a lot in the system that we've known for a long time that actually perhaps hasn't been nailed down and adhered to in terms of, you know, sufficient dose, um, you know, in terms of completing treatments, these kind of factors um, that actually gives you a sort of a sound basis for the delivery of whatever model of therapy it is that you're delivering. Yeah. Above and beyond then therapist effects, which, you know, I think is an important contributor yeah. uh, together get, with 
Yeah, you're going to get there. I know. We're going to get to the therapist. But but, there, but there's all. But also, we know that there are there are kind of there's a strong sort of socio sort of economic deprivation argument as well. And in fact, when um, in a paper we did with colleagues looking at data from the IAT, one of the biggest differences in terms of outcomes, and I think it was something like 17% difference in outcome, was in terms of social deprivation. So in other words, the social context um, in which people live is one of the primary indicators. So we spend a lot of time looking at sort of the minutiae of within therapy sessions and all this, and yet there's one of the biggest contributors to determining outcomes is sitting out there in the real world. Right, right. The social context, absolutely, and yeah. the deprivations. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree, Michael. We, we, we tend to think about what happened in the session, and we realize. I mean, there's so much work in sociology about neighborhoods and the effect of neighborhoods on people's functioning and well-being, and yet we tend to think of uh, patient problems at an individual level and look at, at kind of what's going on interpsychically rather than, than socially. Yeah, well, we but, have a colleague, colleague Nick, Nick Firth, who's done some wonderful work um, looking at exactly, you know, th- therapist, clinic, and neighbourhood effects. Yeah, um, yeah. So that, that is all on its way out for dissemination. So the one part of this which I'm interested in, and I didn't hear you talk about, is the actual work environment for the therapist? What is the climate within a clinic or service? Um, What is the rate of burnout and pressure on therapists? How satisfied are they with the work they're doing? And those effects on patients. Yes, this is another interesting contextual factor, maybe. So you can think of context as in neighborhoods um, and the socioeconomic aspects and how they impact on patients. But you could also think about organizational climate and context. So Mm -hmm. um, one of our shared interests is therapist effects. So Michael, myself and another colleague, Dave Saxon, collaborated some time ago in a study where we collected data on therapists job satisfaction and occupational burnout levels, Mm self-reported by therapists. We then followed up all of the patients they treated over the course of one year. And uh, we found significant associations between therapist burnout and job satisfaction with their patients' outcomes. Yeah, yeah. Such that therapists with higher indices of burnout, particularly a facet of burnout referred to as disengagement, had poorer treatment outcomes and those that were less satisfied with their jobs had poorer treatment outcomes too. So that made us curious about the the organizational aspect and the pressures of the job and um, this whole area of occupational health and well-being. Since then, I've collected data in another study, but we failed to replicate this this Mm -hmm. finding. So in in a follow-up study, which is currently under peer review, so it's not yet published, um, there was there were no significant associations between therapist reported mm. burnout and job satisfaction with clinical outcomes. So, mm. um, it's it's still it's still mixed evidence. Um, yeah. Nevertheless, we think that therapists' occupational health and well-being in itself 
is certainly an important outcome of interest, both from mm. a research perspective. What can we do to make the job more um, less less difficult for for patients who or for therapists who experience burnout? Yeah, mm-hmm. and whether improvements in occupational burnout at the therapist level trickle down or have an effect on patients' outcomes is yet to be demonstrated, but it's certainly a very interesting and worthwhile area of inquiry. Mm -hmm. So let's get to this issue of therapists because it keeps coming up in our conversations. We know, and, and some of the best and most convincing research has come from, uh, these data that, uh, derived from IAPT and the National Health Service. There are, there is, uh, without a doubt, variability in outcomes due to therapists. Some therapists consistently get better outcomes than other therapists. And as I say this, I, I see the graph, uh, Michael, that you guys published with the, the, the green and the red uh, therapists uh, always in my mind. So, Therapists are not interchangeable. Uh, uh, what are the implications for a large system of care for this variability among therapists? Michael, do you want to start and I'll follow? Yeah. Well, I mean, back, backtracking just slightly, I, th- I think one of the frustrations of all the work on sort of therapist effects and the variability is that so much of it is, um, in a sense, anonymous in some ways. We don't know actually who these people are. You know, I can go back sort of 20, maybe even 25 years when we were building up, collecting initial development of the clinical, you know, core outcome. Um, Collecting data from uh, patients is fine, um, but actually therapists have been continually resistant about giving mm. information about themselves. And I think that is one real sort of um, block that we have in terms of... Under- so, in fact, you know, we end up with these, these very clear kind of data showing, you know, groups of therapists being twice as effective as other groups of therapists consistently. Uh, mm. That's the main point. But actually who those people are and what they're actually doing is, is the real stumbling block and the glass ceiling, I think, that's that's in research at the moment. So, I mean, I think that that's, that's really what I think is needed. Um, I mean, I think there's work, I mean, you know, your chapter is brilliant chapter in the handbook, you know, looking at the characteristics, but I, I still think that we actually need to go a real step change in terms of being able to access and look at what people are doing that makes them, some people so much more consistently effective than other people. And I think that's, that would be my one dream research project, I think, that would be, mm. be left on me um, if, we, if we could find out that. Um, so, because I think, go on. Yeah, essentially, we have this large variability. And, and Jamie, you know, that's, that's where we're looking. What is the variability in outcomes and how can we use understanding of that variability to improve quality of care. And here we have therapists, as you say, Michael, that's a large source of variability. But because of the way the system's set up, because of the way uh, research is conducted, we don't really know uh, very much about 
the therapist. And even if we do, it's difficult in a system of care to intervene in a way. So maybe I, I would rephrase the question, say, in an ideal world where we knew who the therapists were and uh, what they were doing, it's a thorny question to think about how we could improve service given that knowledge. So as a thought experiment, what could we do? Well, I have, I have two, two replies to this. It's, it's, un, it's uncontroversial now that a substantial proportion of variability in outcomes is due to differences between therapies. This is, has been very well established. So the question is, what can we learn from the most effective therapists that we could then try mm. and um, instill or uh, encourage, implement somehow in the rest of the workforce or indeed in our trainees and the new generation of therapists? So um, that might be a perspective on understanding either the states or traits of effective therapists. Mm. Are these more stable characteristics that mm -hmm. define the high beast? effective therapists, or are they fluctuating states? For example, when a therapist is burnt out, they may be less effective. When they yeah. are less burnt out, they may be more effective. Now, that's one angle you could take. There's an alternative perspective on the therapist effects, which is an, an interesting position to have. Um, even if we don't know what characterizes the highly effective therapists, we can actually reduce the variability between therapists using feedback. Mm -hmm. So we recently, this year, published a meta-analysis of clinical trials uh, conducted in the United States and led by Michael Lambert and his group, where we found that when you implement progress feedback in uh, university counseling settings, mostly in, in these studies, you reduce the therapist effect. In other words, the variability between therapists becomes constrained. It becomes less of an influence on the uh, on the outcomes of that particular cohort relative to usual care without feedback. Put another way, um, all you have to do actually is introduce feedback, support it, and ensure that it's well uh, implemented in a system so that the who your therapist is um, doesn't determine the outcomes of patients. So yeah. you can reduce variability. You can reduce it, but it's it's the variability still there, is it not? Sure. I mean, sure. even, you can't eliminate it. Yeah, but re yeah. but reducing it is probably a good step forward in the sense that in um, the who the therapist is becomes less of a lottery. Yeah. Can I, can I just can I, can I just say here as well? In terms of that, we've actually kind of replicated that empirically within an IAP service with a PhD student who's just completed, where going through a whole series of programs and the final one was actually devising a bespoke sort of deliberate practice light really mm -hmm. in terms of mm -hmm. the skills and actually we we have this evidence of ex exactly this effect of reduce reducing the variability and actually the outcomes increasing slightly so not at the cost mm -hmm. of of reducing the outcomes um, the outcomes stay the same, improve slightly, actually, 
but the variability across the therapists, and these were the same therapists we tracked yeah. over five years for different interventions, and that bespoke deliberate practice light reflective practice intervention actually yeah. reduced the variability. Right. So there's some intervention at a well. at a serv- at a service level that that worked. Well, here's my concern. Um, and that is uh, in the research that Simon Goldberg uh, did with the therapist who were receiving routine outcome monitoring feedback didn't improve over the course of their career. So mm-hmm. might reduce the variability, but the critical question is how do we help maybe all the therapists gradually improve? Um, because it doesn't look like just receiving feedback really results in therapist improvement, which is not surprising to me because we're giving feedback on a pretty global level. If you look at the idea of deliberate practice, you need feedback about particularly particular skills that are necessary for performance. But I think maybe what you then have to get into is the realm of sort of matching, better matching, um, so that actually you're, because I think this is all about trying to, you know, we have effective therapies, we have broadly effective therapists, et cetera. You know, we're not going to change, there's a whole lot in this system we're not going to change. So I think a lot of what we're looking for are the finer tunings that actually to try and, how can we tweak this system to make things a better fit so that actually, you know, person X gets the treatment which is most appropriate for them with the therapist mm. that's most appropriate for them. So mm. if we can start doing that kind of configuration in a more informed, intelligent way, sort of smarter assessment, smarter assignment, um, then I think there's a way there where we can actually move therapies forward without doing anything really revolutionary in any mm. way, in that kind of way, uh, but just doing better. And I think that's, you know, that's partly the way of, um, you know, the strat care kind of design of actually trying to decide, well, who is best for the low intensity and who can go straight mm. to the high intensity and not having to go through that experience of failure to um, to get to the treatment, which is most appropriate for them. And I think if we can sort of start configuring those parts of the jigsaw together, then, you know, I think we will potentially improve the outcomes of therapy, but there may be an absolute limit on what we can reach anyway, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we need to well, sort of a have of reasonable the... expectations of our yeah. outcomes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, so what you're really describing is precision mental health services. Can we learn from the big data uh, how best to match patients to the therapist, to the type of treatment, to the intensity of treatment uh, that's going to result in optimal outcomes? And I know you guys are working on this, so you have the data to do it. And I think that's that's uh, pretty exciting. You know, your last comment, Michael, really comes back to let's remember where we started, and that is mental health services are remarkably effective. And so what we're doing and talking about here is tweaking the system through feedback, through matching in a way to marginally improve 
the outcomes. Now, I use the word marginal, not in a derogatory sense, because, uh, and you guys have written this, a, a small change in the benefit uh, for particular patients aggregated over the entire service is a remarkable benefit in the mental health. And, and there's an additional angle to this, which, which is the cumulative benefit of small incremental changes. Mm -hmm. So in, in the feedback trial that we did in IAP services, the, the effect size favoring the feedback intervention is 0.2. Small effect size in conventional terms, but scaled at a large population level, yeah. it's, it's clinically important. Now, yeah. if you do that, you bring in feedback into services, then you bring in stratified care where you um, use data to determine which patients may benefit more from a high intensity dose instead of a low intensity dose. So you match patients to the dose of treatment. The effect size that you will get for that is around 0.15. Some mm -hmm. people might argue that that's negligible, but if you add those yeah. in a cumulative fashion with the effects of feedback, you've got 0.35 additional enhancement yeah. of therapy by bringing in smart decision tools and so on. You then match patients to the right therapist and you get mm -hmm. another incremental uh, benefit. Mm -hmm. Overall, uh, in the in the long run, through tweaking around the edges, you could potentially you could potentiate the effects of therapy. Yeah. Never eliminating error, never making therapists completely effective for every patient. That's probably unrealistic, but probably better than they are today. Mm. Without a doubt. Um, let's see. I was thinking of something where you're talking about the the incremental care. Uh, I mean, that's really the challenge is how do we keep uh, um, uh, learning from the data we're collecting to improve quality of care. So it seems like the, the biggest challenge is, is what I wanted to talk about is implementation and scaling up. So um, how do you do that? Because you talked about the difficulty of the different services um, uh, acceptance of feedback systems, for instance. So what have you learned about the scaling up and implementation part of this? Besides it's really <laughs> difficult. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I can only, I, I'm not in, an IAP service and that kind of way. I mean, I've, I've been with Jamie and Kim and Wolfgang, we, we just reviewed all the kind of implementation stuff in relation to feedback and stuff. And it, it just comes up as the consistent, you know, thorn in the neck, in the kind of neck of, of the whole implementation, you know, implementation is just the whole issue, really. It just gets to the organization, the problems, resistance, yeah. the money, the funding, all the difficulties uh, and I don't know I, I don't I wouldn't I wouldn't claim to have an answer to that one at, at all I, I just think it's a it's an ongoing problem really um, uh, well unless... what when you think about it Michael you know psychotherapy is a very personal one-to-one uh, -one relationship but so is the implementation it's a relationship between sure uh, uh, the system of care or the clinic with sure. uh, these ideas. I know, you know, the biggest feedback effect ever found was Inga Nambla's 
uh, OQ study in Norway. And she always talked about uh, when you ask her, why was this effect uh, larger than others? She said, I was the OQ mom. She was there working with the therapist, encouraging them, uh, really uh, working with the climate of the various clinics. But but of course, that that becomes the weakness of it because, you know, I mean, it's an observation I've made about some of the studies, you know, some of the feedback studies still employ, you know, we had an international consultant, you know, so they've had... The, the kind of the great and the good involved in the study. And I just say mm-hmm. to myself, this isn't generalizable. You know, yeah. you can't keep running a system um, of, for example, feedback implementation, relying on the great and the good, having their word and making that. It's got to be sort of, you've got to take them out of the equation, really, for it to be a reality test that this is something you can actually use in your to, to be scaled up. You know, it's got to... You've got to take away the charismatic people involved in that. And it's well, got to it's got to drive itself really for its own good, because the charismatic people won't be around. Yeah, you know. yeah I, I'll push you a little bit, Michael, because you know, we're all mental health professionals. We know the importance of relationship and the the personal relationship between uh the actors. So, yes, you can have a charismatic uh, figure leading your your feedback-informed system. But it is important to think about the climate in the clinic, who's implementing this, how it's done, so that the personal relationships of the therapist and the staff and so forth with the system is built in a positive way so i think i think i think implementation can be systematically uh designed to improve that in a way that it is scalable but but i think you know the relationship is important but actually in the end it has to be about ownership it will only Mm. work if the people who are actually using it have a sense of ownership of that so, you know, the charismatic person, fine and whatever. But in the end, if the person doesn't own that that procedure is going to be a useful one, in the same way that you've talked about relationship between sort of therapist and patient, if the patient isn't owning the work that yeah. they're doing, et cetera, it doesn't matter how good the therapist is, if the patient isn't accepting yeah. it and owning it, it's not going to work. And I think it's the same principle within implementation for feedback or et cetera. Yeah. It's yeah. about ownership. So... You know, I, 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 that's what I want to kind of see is actually the, the priority on ownership, that this is actually, that they buy the idea in some ways, regardless of who is actually selling the product, really. Yeah. It's actually the product itself, not the seller. Um, right. Although yeah. sellers, some sellers can be well, more the, convincing than others. Yeah, the ownership, I think, is really important. I mean, mm-hmm. mandating any of these kinds of uh, practices is uh, not going to be optimally effective. It has to be that the people using it find value in it and have that ownership, as you say. You know, I'm noticing the time. We've been doing this about an hour. I want to say thank you in two ways to both of you. First, thank you for the amazing uh, efforts to 
um, make psychological care accessible to people. Uh, and the, the work you've done and the research that you've produced, which has been uh, um, absolutely astounding in its uh, uh, kind of rigor, but also its applicability. And then to thank you for today having this conversation. What a, a great opportunity to talk to both of you. It's been a pleasure. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Bruce. Thanks for listening. Making Therapy Better is brought to you by CarePaths. CarePaths offers a complete behavioral health EHR and practice management software solution, including claims, billing, clinical notes and documents, scheduling, and teletherapy, all for one simple and affordable monthly price. CarePaths EHR is HIPAA compliant and ONC certified and can also support electronic prescribing for an additional fee. Their latest release, CarePaths Connect, includes automated measurement-based care and the ability to create a digital front door for your practice, as well as a free mobile app designed to increase patient engagement. If you're just starting your practice or are dissatisfied with your current EHR, go to carepaths.com to start your free trial today. To find out more about Bruce Wampold and his work as CarePaths Chief Clinical Officer, visit makingtherapybetter.com.